0: One of those fifteen-dollar theological words, mortification. What does it mean? Simply put, it means to kill your sin, to kill your flesh. We'll talk about it next. Stick around. Killing sin. That is exactly what we'll be talking about here today on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. See, we need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. And that's the message that comes out of Romans chapter 8. We would invite you to join us as we examine together just what it means to be killing sin or killing the flesh. Yeah, the flesh. Well, that's that mortification word again, isn't it? Let's discuss it and bring it down into some terms we can understand. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. Last couple weeks we've
1: been in Romans chapter 8 and we've been looking at the idea of belonging to Christ and what that means and what the implications of that are. And so today we want to look at verses 12 to 13 and so you can follow along with me as I read these two verses. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Today I want to look at, basically, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's a quote from John uh, Owen, who was uh, wrote a book that our men went through years ago called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification referring to killing sin. And as believers, there's one thing that we all know that we deal with probably on a daily basis is sin. Even though... Christ gives us victory. Christ has defeated the enemy and death and sin. We still live in a mortal body. We still live in a sin-stained, fallen world. And so we still deal with sin as believers on a daily basis. And the answer is, the, the question that people are asking, well, how can we defeat sin as believers? How can we get rid of sin as believers? Well, I have good news and bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. (laughs) Sin's going to be with you till the day you die. As long as you're in this body. As long as you're here in this sin-stained world, you're going to have to deal with sin. The good news is that we can have victory over sin that we are not held captive by sin any longer. We're going to be celebrating communion here in a few moments. And the one thing that that reminds us of is that when Christ went to the cross, that he was victorious over what? Sin and death. That we no longer have to give in to the sin that once dominated our lives. And it's unfortunate today because even in the church of Christ... We see Christians struggling and they come up with all kinds of different ways to try to deal with sin in their lives. And what Paul is telling us here in these verses is, look, there's there's one way that you can deal with sin. And he's going to share that with us. But before we get there, I want us to think a little bit about some of the ways that we try to deal with sin. Because we all have some degree fallen and given in to sin. Sometimes we look at a method. Sometimes we think, well, a certain method helped me defeat sin in my life. Certain circles, there's those who are fighting against sin, trying to live the Christian life. And they look to a, just that, a method. A certain approach to maybe Bible study. Or a certain approach to prayer. It may be a special way of ordering one's daily life. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. Not at all. There's nothing wrong with understanding prayer more fully or pursuing Bible study or disciplining one's daily life. That's, that's not bad. That's good. There's nothing wrong with keeping a list of items to pray for in a prayer journal or proceeding regularly through a personal program of Bible study or discipleship. But what I want to say is a method in and of itself, beloved, does not guarantee our holiness. It does not guarantee our sanctification. It does not guarantee that it's going to give us strength to do the right thing when the crisis comes. You think of somebody like Martin Luther, who his experience when he was in the monastery, before his conversion, he did all these things and more. He used a method that some thought would somehow make you more holy And even though Luther fasted and he prayed and he kept vigils and he confessed his sins, often for hours at a time, he was unable to find either peace or holiness in such practices. And his deliverance from sin came in quite an entirely different way. So there's nothing wrong with certain methods of Bible study and prayer. Hey, I'm all for that. We need more of that. But that in and of itself doesn't guarantee your sanctification. Secondly, some folks look for a formula. You know, they they want a little formula. Just boil it down. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll go do it. Some little formulas are rather simplistic. You've probably heard them. You know, you just need to let go and let God. What does that mean? Well, you just need to give Jesus control of your life. Or let Jesus have the throne. Or just take each day by faith. Now, all those are well meaning, well-intended little phrases that people use to encourage a brother or sister in Christ. But the appeal of formulas is that they're they're easy. I mean, wouldn't it be wouldn't you want a formula to cure sin in your life if I could give you a formula that worked? Who wouldn't want one? But they're often too easy, they're too simplistic. And in the end, they just don't work. Because in and of itself. There's no mere formula adequate enough to deal with the harsh realities of human life and sin. So whether it's a method or whether it's a formula or the third area here, people look to this often today in the church, they look for an experience. Believers seek some life-transforming experience other than salvation. A lot of times it's called the second blessing, it's called the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. And that experience is supposed to somehow mark a major advance in the Christian life. In other words, you get saved, you come to Jesus, but then you need this second dairy blessing of the Spirit to really kind of get a grasp on your Christianity and to really be a disciple of Christ. And a lot of times, they'll even use our text in the text before, it, chapter 7, and they'll they'll use this as a proof text for such an experience. They'll say, well, look at Paul in Romans 7. I mean, he's dealing with the flesh. He's struggling. At one point, he cries out what wretched man he is. And the Holy Spirit's not really talked about there much. But then you get to Romans 8. Boy, he's talking about the Spirit every every other verse. So, you know, that must be the key. That must be the key. This secondary blessing. Well, we know that biblically doesn't line up with scripture because either you have the spirit of Christ or you don't either you have the Holy Spirit resident in your life or you you, you don't and only those who know Christ only those who have come to him by faith have that deposit of the spirit in their life remember in verse 9 of chapter 8 He says, basically, at the end, he says, if anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? He does not belong to him. So this isn't something that you get in stages. When you come to Christ, he gives you all he's going to give you as far as the Spirit goes. But are we appropriating what we have? That's the key. And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, well, what's the proper approach to sanctification? If methods and formulas... And experiences don't work. How, how can I have victory over sin in my life? How are we as Christians supposed to achieve victory over sin and grow in our holiness? Which is what exactly Romans 8 expects of us. He starts off there in verse 12. So then or therefore. Some translations read. And what Paul is saying is based on what I just told you. Here's what you need to do. And that's what he did. He gave us all this information beforehand. The first occurrence here of therefore goes all the way back to Romans 5. We're not going to go through all that because we've already been there. After Paul had explained the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, he says, therefore, based on what I just shared with you, here's what should be happening in your life. As a matter of fact, everything we've been studying in Romans 5 to 8 has been working up to this point, verses 12 and 13. And he wants us to know that based on the information that I just shared with you, that you need to therefore understand this. In each case, when he uses that word therefore, it introduces a, a consequence, something that follows, something that was previously set in teaching. And what Paul is arguing is that Christians have an obligation We have an obligation to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the sinful desires that we have within us. And for that reason, because of what he's just stated, because the Holy Spirit has joined them to Jesus Christ, we have to understand, first of all, we've been delivered from the wrath of God. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That God's wrath was set against us because of our sin. And now we're brought into an entirely different world new, fresh realm, the sphere of God's rule in our hearts. And then secondly, we've been given a new nature, he says. We've not just been delivered from God's wrath, but he, he literally transformed us. He made us something we weren't before. And he made us alive to spiritual things. You see that when someone comes to Christ when they're transformed by God's Holy Spirit and the power of his word and the power of the gospel, all of a sudden, they're not the same person they used to be. They have new desires. They have new wants. They want to know certain things about God. They want to understand their faith more fully. They have a desire to study his word. All those things come into play once someone has been effectively and divinely saved by God. They've given a brand new nature. And then thirdly, they've been assured of an entirely different destiny. Once you come to Christ, you understand that, you know what? You're not destined to hell any longer. You're not destined to spend an eternity under the hand of God's wrath. But now you are forgiven and that you will live forever in a place called heaven. See, these are things that God has done or will do for us as believers. And all that takes place through the sacrifice of Christ. Without the sacrifice of Christ, none of these things happen. That's why we, at least once a month, gather and remember the sacrifice of Christ. We remember, through communion, what he has done for us. Because he has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Do you understand that? Paul says, because God has done this for us, we have an obligation. He says, we are debtors in verse 12. We're not debtors to the old flesh. We don't owe it a thing. We're freed from that. For the first time in our life, we can live a life that's pleasing to God. Because he saved us. He transformed us. And now we have an obligation to live Like God has lived. Like Christ has lived. We must live for him each and every day. Let me say it this way. Everything that we have seen in Romans 8 up to this point has been a general description of a Christian. It really has. It's talked about his status, his present experience, his character, his future expectation. And now for the first time Paul draws all of this to a conclusion. And he says basically that the work of God for us and in us presents us a very serious obligation. And that obligation is to live for God and not according to our own sinful desires. He states them kind of negatively here. He says we are not to live according to the sinful nature and we're not to give rein to the misdeeds of the body. But on the positive side, it's very much implied. Instead of living according to the the sinful desires, we are obviously to live according to what? The Spirit. Instead of giving rain to the fleshly body, we're to put the sins of the body to death, the Bible says. Instead of yielding the members of our, our body to sin, we're to yield them to God for righteousness. Now, I know this doesn't sound familiar. It can because all you have to do is go all the way back to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 11. He says, so you must also consider or reckon, count yourselves, what? What does he say? Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its Passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as, who, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin, look at what it says in verse 14, will not, have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Paul's teaching about our union with Christ in that chapter. He was teaching that if we're Christians, we've been united with Christ in his death. And so that his death becomes our death. And his resurrection becomes our resurrection. We're a new creature in Christ. We're no longer who we used to be. I don't know about you, but that that, that should get you a little bit excited. That you have a new status before God. That you're changed. You're not who you used to be. You're a brand new person in Christ. And because of all that, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a calculation you make. Just like you were, if you were balancing your checkbook. You had $100 and you had a bill that you had to pay for $150. You better not write that check. Right? It's not going to work. <laughs> the bill's bigger than what you have. Why? Because you calculated it. You looked at the facts. See, we need to know as believers that we can reckon ourselves dead to sin. That we no longer have to placate to its desires. That we don't have to give in. And so when he gets to Romans 8, that's exactly what he's telling us to do. And he says it's not some formula, it's not some experience... But he says it's the very role of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the Holy Spirit that joins us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that allows us to live a life that's pleasing to Christ. So Paul says in verse 12 that it's our obligation we're a debtor not to the flesh but it's our obligation to live according to the Spirit, not the flesh is what he says. If you're going to receive that kind of victory and achieve that kind of victory over sin it's not going to be through some formula or through some whatever you come up with it's going to be through the power of the holy spirit that's the only way you can do it and that's what he says there in verse 13 if you live according to the flesh you'll die but if by the spirit what do you do you put to death the deeds of the body you will live See, this isn't about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and and trying to figure out how to be more disciplined in your spiritual life. It's about basically giving up and saying, you know what, God, I can't do this. You have to do it through me. You have to do it through the power of your spirit. I mean, you know, your flesh cannot manufacture holiness as pleasing to God. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Paul said this. He said, I know that in me, in my flesh, he says, dwells what? No good thing. He doesn't say, well, there's some good there. I just got to dig harder to find it. He says, no, it's not there. There's not one good thing in our flesh. For to will is present in me, Paul says. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. In other words, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I can't do it. And see, the mistake we make so many times as Christians is we roll up our sleeves and sin, I'll show you. I'm not going to give in to you anymore. And we do it in the flesh. And we lose every time. Paul recognized very simply that apart from God, there was within himself no resource for doing good. Not one. Not a little itty-bitty part And that's true of all of us. None of us have the capacity to gain victory over the flesh on our own. And we need to understand that. I think if we understood that simple truth, boy, the spiritual life would just open up for us. Matter of fact, in Romans 8, verses 5 and 8 there, he says, There, after the flesh, they do mind the things of the flesh. The carnal mind is what? Enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither Indeed can be. So then they are in the flesh. Who are in the flesh cannot please God. Apart from the Holy Spirit's power, beloved, a person is controlled by corruption. By corruption. The unregenerate person, the person without Christ, has no capacity whatsoever to deal with any kind of sin in their life. Now you may have a different spectrum I mean, there's some people that are just pure evil, and there's other people that our world would call they're morally good. But before a holy God, being morally good doesn't add up. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're falling short of something, that means there's a demarcation that God makes. And he says, if you want me to accept you, this is where you have to be. This is the line that you have to cross. And somehow we think if we try hard enough that we'll get there eventually. Just keep coming to church, just keep praying, just keep reading the Bible, and just keep doing all these things that somehow we think is going to get us to that mark. And the Bible says, no, you're not going to do it on your own. You need the power of the Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. And as Christians, we need to understand that that's something that we need to have ongoing in our life. See, the mistake we make is we become a Christian. All of our sins are forgiven, right? We feel great. We're going to save the world. And then we start living the Christian life by the flesh. (laughs) We start thinking somehow that if I just roll my sleeves up and try harder, that this sin thing will go away. So we have accountability groups and we have, you know, all kinds of counseling that goes on and all these kind of things. I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying we're looking in the wrong direction. See, when a... The Holy Spirit enters a person in a person's life, that life changes. That life changes. It has to. Because it's not the old life, it's a new life. And with that change comes the capacity to overcome the flesh. Turn over with me to Second Corinthians chapter ten. Second Corinthians chapter ten. Look at what Paul writes here in Second Corinthians chapter ten. Verse one. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Have you ever met somebody like that? Sometimes it's a lot easier to shoot off an email to somebody you're upset with than to call them on the phone or meet with them. (laughs) Because in the email, you can say all kinds of things that you'd never say in person. And that's about as unbiblical How to deal with a brother or sister in Christ as you can get. Call them on the phone if you can't meet with them personally. If you can meet with them personally, then meet with them personally. But Paul says, hey, you know, I I know you're understanding here. When I'm away from you, you seem more bold. But he says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against someone who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So they were even accusing Paul. Of walking according to the flesh. Living according to the flesh. He says, for though we walk in the flesh. In other words, hey, I got a human body just like you. That's what he's talking about. We are not, what? Waging war according to the flesh. What's he saying? I get it. There's a war going on. Good, evil, holiness, sin. But don't think I try to fight it according to the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh. He says in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are what? Not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy, what, strongholds. See, God has given us incredible, powerful weapons to fight against sin. I just think a lot of believers don't understand what they are.
0: That is exactly what this series is all about. Arming you with those weapons to fight the sin that we need to put off. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, well, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650 366 9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to uh, visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth.